you've just spent a few years in school, you know who Ben Franklin is and some of his inventions. So you think of him and you think of things like bifocals, right? You think of those kinds of inventions, but there's one invention of his that we use all the time without really knowing where it came from, and it's the pro and con list. Anybody use pros and cons lists? Yes. So Benjamin Franklin is the one that invented the pro and con list. You find this in a letter that he wrote to one of his friends as he was giving him counsel and how Benjamin Franklin himself makes difficult decisions. So essentially, as he's counseling his friend, he says, this is how I make difficult decisions. I pull out a sheet of paper. I literally divide it with a, I take a pencil, just right down the middle. And he writes the pros on the left, he writes the cons on the right. And he says, over the next three to four days, as I'm thinking about this decision, I just write down my thoughts, phrases, motives in each of the two columns. After that three to four days, I come back, I look at the list, and I weigh it out. I compare the two, the pros versus the cons. And as I weigh them out over the next day or two, I just sit with the weight of the balance of the two different sides. And then after that two days, I make a decision. And boom, the pros and cons list is birthed. And here's what we do. We still use it today. We use the pros and cons list just as Benjamin Franklin did. He might as well have written the letter to us because we still see the value of the pros and cons list. And here's why. There's a power to it. The pros and cons list, the power of it is the power of comparison, and the power of comparison brings clarity. So whenever we're making tough decisions, you can get paralyzed by the weight of the decision. It gets confusing, and it's complicated, and the gift of the pros and cons list is you list out all the good, and you list out all the bad, and whenever you weigh the two, you can see, you have clarity because you can see what the clearest answer should be in your life. And then boom, you're able to move forward. It's a great gift. You've used it. I use it. I used it this past week. Maybe you did too. So as we're looking at this idea of what Paul's been trying to tease out through all of the book of Galatians, we're kind of coming to an end here with an idea. And what we're looking at in the passage tonight, Paul uses the power of comparison to bring clarity when it comes to matters of faith. What we see Paul do is um, he takes a story that's well known to the people of Galatians, Sarah and Hagar, and he's going to use this story to compare the two different characters of the story to make clear what is complicated for the Galatians in matters of faith. So if you think about all that we've been talking about, Paul has been rebuking the Galatians because they followed some really bad teaching from some Jewish teachers that have come into the life of the church. They basically said that you become a child of God by believing Jesus, but also becoming a ritual Jew or a custom Jew through circumcision and obedience to the law. Basically saying it's Jesus and obedience to God's law and your personal goodness. And Paul's saying that's ludicrous. There's no possible way that this can be how we have right relationship with God. He essentially says this in verse 21. This is what he's getting at when he says, tell me, you who want to be under the law, don't you hear the law? He's 
he's appalled by the idea that they would try to go from Jesus as sufficient on your behalf to now living according to the law because he says if you understand the law, then you wouldn't want to be under its authority. Basically what he's saying, it's a hellish way to live. Nobody, if you truly understand what the law requires of you, would ever want to place themselves under the authority of the law. And so here's what I want to do tonight. So I want to follow Paul's source of comparison in the story of Sarah and Hagar. And as we do, I believe there's going to be two things that are made clear for us. First, that salvation is about God's ability and not our own. Salvation is not about you, but is actually about the power and strength of our God. And then secondly, grace has always had an enemy. It's always had an enemy. We see this in this passage. We've seen it throughout his, human history. We see it today. And so as we work through these two truths, I want to work to try to apply them, try to see, okay, what does this look like for our own life? How do we impact this out? How do we tease this out for our own personal lives? And then we'll conclude with a couple of questions, all right? So we're going to start in verse 21. Um, here's what verse 21 says. Um, we're going to go through verse 21 through 23. Here's basically what I'm going to do for a little bit, all right? Anybody remember uh, Saved by the Bell? Yes. I'm going to pull a Zach. You know how a Zach would just be like, time out? And then you like give some background or context of what was going on. That's what I'm going to do during this part of the passage, right? So I'm going to read through verse 23. I'll do a pause and I'll share a little bit about the story. So here's what verse 21 says. Tell me, you who want to be under the law, don't you hear the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave and the other by a free woman. But the one by the slave was born as a result of the flesh, while the one by the free woman was born through promise. All right, so here's the story, all right? Familiar story to the Galatians, not so much for us. So let me try to unpack it, give you the context, and we'll keep moving forward. So God gave Abraham and Sarah a promise. We see this all the way back in Genesis. So we said one of the reasons why we're diving into Galatians is because as we have been wrestling with the story of Abraham in the book of Genesis, that Galatians just springs forth the gospel through the stories that we had been wrestling with together as a church. And so we're bringing that to fruition here tonight. Abraham and Sarah get a promise from God. Here's the promise, that God is gonna give them a son, their son is going to give birth to a nation, and then through that nation, God was going to bring salvation to the whole world. Now, as they receive this promise, what you see is all of the book of Genesis unfolds is that there's a 25-year gap between the promise and whenever Sarah becomes pregnant. Now, if you're young, 25 years is a long time to wait to get pregnant. If you're in your 90s, in your 80s, like Abraham and Sarah were, that is, it feels like dinosaur times. You know what I'm saying? It's, that is so long for you to be that old in order for you to see the promise come to fruition. And so about 15 years into this promise, Abraham and Sarah decide it's time to help God out. It's this promise is taking forever. And so what happens is they don't stop believing in the promise. 
They just believe that it's now their turn to take the burden upon themselves to make it happen. And so what you see the Bible call this is that it's the scheme of the flesh. You saw this in verse 23 when Paul says that the son of Hagar was the result of the flesh. Because what the scheme of the flesh is, is any time that we take the promise of God upon ourselves to bring it to fruition with the exclusivity of, or excluding God from the participation of it, that is the scheme of the flesh. God, you can't fulfill this. I'm going to take it upon myself and I'm going to make it happen. That's the scheme of the flesh. And so we see Abraham and Sarah, they follow through. They bring in Sarah's servant, Hagar. They bring in Hagar to Abraham. Hagar becomes pregnant with Abraham, gives birth to a son, Ishmael. And Ishmael grows up to father a nation himself. The father, he's the father of the Arabs. But what happens is God says, not the child of promise. So Ishmael becomes a father of a nation, but it's not the nation of the promise because the promise was made to Abraham and Sarah, not to Abraham and Hagar. And so there is a son, but it's not the son of promise. It's not the nation of the promise. So if you go from there, fast forward about another nine to 10 years, and what we see happen is that Abraham and Sarah are met by a few visitors. They come visit Abraham and Sarah at their tent, and as they come, they eat a meal with Abraham. They make a renewed promise that God's going to fulfill the promise that he told Abraham and Sarah. They, they say, when we come back within a year, Sarah's going to be pregnant. And you know what Abraham and Sarah's response was? It was laughter. They laughed. They knew how old they were. Sarah was uh, unable. She was barren. She's unable to bear a child. And so in the face of this, with their age and their history, they knew that they just laughed at the idea that Sarah was going to become pregnant and they were going to see the promise move forward. But that's exactly what happens. In a year, Sarah is pregnant. She ends up giving birth to her son, Isaac. And Isaac goes on to father the nation of Israel, which is the nation of promise. Because what we see years and years and years later is that Jesus is the great, 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 great grandson of Isaac. And what does God do through Jesus? He brings salvation to the world. He fulfills his promise. So this is the context of what is happening with the story of Hagar and Sarah. So Paul makes this story, he takes this story, and he makes connections to the Galatians and their wrestle with salvation in verses 24 through 26. So here's what he says. So time back in. Zach, timed out. Time it back in. 24. These things are being taken figuratively. For the women represent two covenants. So Paul's not speaking out of his mouth in both sides, all right? He's not saying that Abraham and Sarah and Hagar is a real story, and then he's saying, no, it's just like I'm making this stuff up. It's allegory. He's taking a real story and bringing modern-day implications to the context that he's writing to. One is from Mount Sinai and bears children into slavery. This is Hagar. Now, Hagar represents Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children, but the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. 
So what Paul's doing, he's taking these two women of his life, Hagar and Sarah, and he's saying these, uh, Paul's saying these two women of Abraham's life represent the two covenants. Hagar represents the covenant of the Old Testament. And Sarah represents the covenant of the New Testament. We see this in the comparisons that he makes in verses 24 through 26. So he says, Hagar is Mount Sinai in the present Jerusalem. Look, these are the places of the Old Covenant. This is where Israel received the Old Covenant. It was at Mount Sinai. And it's where they practiced the Old Covenant in the present day Jerusalem. So Paul is saying Hagar is the representative of the Old Covenant. But Sarah is the representative of the New Covenant because her place is the place of the New Covenant, the Jerusalem that's above. That's where Jesus resides. He's risen from the grave. He's seated at the right hand of God. It's the city of Jerusalem that's going to, the new city of Jerusalem that's going to come down to the new heavens or the new earth where God will dwell with his people for all eternity. So Jesus resides there. Sarah is the one of the, the new Jerusalem that's going to come when Jesus comes back again. That's what Paul is saying here. And so here's what he's trying to do. He's trying to bring these realities down to the Galatians so they can understand the paths of these two different different women. Those that follow in the footsteps of Hagar are the children of the old covenant, and those that follow the footsteps of Sarah are the children of the new covenant. Those that trust in their own obedience and their own goodness for their own personal salvation are children of Hagar. They are like what Paul says of Ishmael that they are the scheme of flesh. Basically, their idea of salvation is based on what they can do, not on what God can do. It's the scheme of the flesh. That's exactly how Ishmael came into this world because Abraham and Sarah took it upon themselves to try to bring about the promise to fruition. It was the scheme of their flesh. Paul's saying that's exactly who Ishmael is. If you're following the path of the law, if you're relying on your own obedience, your own personal goodness, then you are a scheme of the flesh. You're basing your salvation on what you can do, not what on God can do. But also like Ishmael, they're children of slavery. Because, because salvation through obedience of the law is like a mortgage that can never fully be paid. What you do in your life is you work and you work and you work, and you're trying to pay off the mortgage, but what Paul says is that this mortgage is something that your work can never fully pay off that debt. And so can you imagine living through all of life, working with all of your might to pay off this debt to find out that it cannot be repaid? You know what that is? That's slavery living indebted and never being able to fully pay it off. Paul's saying, for those of you that are relying on your own obedience and your own goodness in order to have a right relationship with God, you're living out of the scheme of your own heart. You're a child of slavery. You're never gonna find fulfillment you'll never fully be saved. But those that trust in Christ for salvation are like the children of Sarah. Sarah is the one who saw the child that was a miracle. She was in her 90s 
when she has her son Isaac. She's barren. She's the failure. And God brings about the promise through Sarah, not Hagar, and gives her the son. So like Isaac, those that trust in Jesus, they are children of promise. Because look, Jesus fulfilled God's promise for salvation. Jesus is the one that came from Isaac, that lived perfectly, that died on your behalf, that did everything for you that you could not do for yourself. He is God's representative showing that God is the one that does everything for your salvation. You don't do anything. So those that trust in Jesus, they're the ones, they're the children of the promise because Isaac was the son of promise. But even more than that, those that trust in Jesus, they're also like Isaac because they are the children of freedom. Jesus has paid your debt in full, which means that your life is no longer in obligation to pay off that mortgage anymore because Jesus has done it fully on your behalf. So you're no longer the child of slavery, but you're the child of freedom. So look, what Paul makes clear through this power of comparison between the story of Hagar and the story of Sarah is when it comes to your salvation, your God is strong and able while you are fully incapable and weak. Admittance into God's family is not based on what you can do, but solely on what God can do on your behalf. We see this through the power of comparison. We get clarity because of what Paul is bringing to us through these two women's stories. And look, this truth is incredible news to us. Here's what it means for you. The mean, the, this means that God's grace is not just for the fertile Hagars of this world. Meaning that God's grace isn't reserved just for the strong and capable people in this world. We all know people that are like this, don't we? It just seems like success always follows them. They came from the right family. They've taken the right steps. Seems like they've always made the right decisions in life. They have the bank account, they have the promotions, they have the family. It just seems like everything has been going their way. If there are other people, we find them on Instagram, they're the ones that have the perfect life and you compare yourself to them and you say, I could never live up to that. And it seems like God's grace is reserved for those people, but that's not what the gospel says. Instead, God's grace is reserved for the barren Sarahs of this world is reserved for the failures, is reserved for those who are weak and incapable. Whenever they look at what God has required of us for salvation, they see their complete incapability. They are brought down low. They are humbled. They see that if it's placed on their shoulders, salvation will never happen. And here's the good news. If God's grace is extended to Sarah, it means it is extended and it's made available to everyone. Which is why Paul says in Galatians 4.28, now you too, brothers and sisters like Isaac, are children of promise. 
So Paul says this deserves a response, and he gives us a quote from a old book of the Old Testament in verse 27. Here's what he says. Rejoice, childless woman, unable to give birth. Burst into song and shout, you who are not in labor, for the children of the desolate woman will be many, speaking of Sarah here, more numerous than those of the woman who has a husband. So Paul's quoting Isaiah here, the prophet Isaiah. It's Isaiah 54, 1. And so what's happening here, it's, this is the time that this is being written. It's about 1,200 years after Abraham, and it's about 600 years before Paul shows up on the scene. And God's people, they're in exile in Babylon because they have not been obedient to the commands of God. And so as they're in exile, they feel like failures. They're weak and helpless. They're under in servitude to a greater power than them in human means, and the nations seem strong and capable, and they have no idea how the promise is going to move forward. Yet God tells them in the midst of their captivity to rejoice, and here's why. Because the promise does not depend on them, it depends on their God. So in the midst of their exile, God calls his people to worship. And here's why. Because worship both reveals what you believe as well as forms it. Authentic expression of worship is the appropriate response to the work of God's grace. When you see the beauty of the gospel and what Jesus has done on your behalf, the appropriate response is I can't believe how good God is to me. This is why when we sing songs here, we encourage you to have expression. Because Jesus is worthy of your worship. All that God has done on your behalf through Christ Jesus, when you see exactly just the magnitude of what he's done, it springs your soul into this expressive worship for what Jesus has done for you. You sing out loud. You raise up your hands. You follow what the Psalms instruct you, that you sing with the chorus of God's people, that you lift your hands to him, that you lend your soul low to him, bowing down to him, admitting that he is your Lord. He is worthy of your worship. It's the authentic overflow that he is deserving of because of everything that he's done for you. But it's not just for the good times. Because the nation of Israel, whenever this is told to them, it's instructed to them, it's commanded of them, they're still in exile. Which means that it's not just in the good times of our life that Jesus is deserving of our worship, but instead we actually worship in order for our souls to be formed and our belief to be formed inside of us. Whenever things are difficult, when the challenges of life are all before you, when it seems like nothing is going your way, when you're doubting the goodness of God in your life, what does the Bible instruct you to do? It instructs you to worship. Why, do we instruct, why are we instructed to worship? Because whenever we worship the truth of what God has done for us in the face of all that's happening in our life, it forms and shapes your belief. It reminds you of the truth. 
whenever your circumstances seem to be speaking something differently to you, when you worship God as he deserves in light of the truth of what Christ has done for us, it shapes your belief. Some of the most formative times that you're gonna ever have in your life are not in the good times, but they're in the low times. And whenever you worship God in both the high and the low, what you see is that God uses these things to shape Jesus inside of you. So look, this is why we make such a big deal about this corporate gathering right here. Because we put a lot of thought and time and energy into us as a church rehearsing the good news of the gospel. Logan's picking out songs that are being put on your lips that are singing about the praises of what Jesus has done for you. We have liturgy that's taking the truth uh, that God has sought you out, that we are sinners, and we confess that to God, and, but we live in light of the assurance of all that God has done for us in Christ Jesus. We have songs and we have liturgy that are rehearsing this throughout the course of our entire service. We work diligently to try to have sermons that are always, every single week, pointing you to Jesus, no matter where we're at in the scriptures. This is why we take communion together every single week, because it's reminding you that through Jesus Christ alone, you have fellowship with God. This is why we stop and we have times of expression and response to all that we've worked through throughout the life of the service with the final two songs. This is why we do a benediction, where it's like this is the blessing that we're sending you out with, that you are the people, the children of the promise. Those that have trusted fully in the work that Christ has done on your behalf. I know when you come in here every single week, if you're doing the pros and cons list, you may end up on the con side more than you do the pro. Because life is hard. And what's the appropriate response? Worship. Because Jesus is worthy of it. He's the Lord of your life, the good and the bad. And he is what our hope is fixed on. We're just saying about that. So I had a, Cherish and I had a friend um, that I think was just an incredible model of this. Um, so her name was Jenna. Um, we were in a community group with her. She had gotten married, um, found a guy that her, uh, they started a family together. They had a little girl together. Um, and she was in her 20s, and she was diagnosed with terminal cancer. And in the midst of terminal cancer, the practice of their family is they showed up every single Sunday. They knew that she wasn't going to live. Life was not turning out turning out the way that they thought it was going to turn out. In their 20s, they're trying to figure out how to say goodbye rather than dreaming about what it looks like to grow and expand their family. But you know what her response was on Sundays? Tearful, worshipful expression for what Jesus had done in her life. She was captivated by what Jesus had done on her behalf. She embraced that she was the weak and incapable, both physically and spiritually. And she looked forward with anticipation to the day that Jesus would make her fully healed again. She was a child of promise. 
and her response is worship. So look, worship can be work, but it's necessary work. Because every time that we come, we gather together as Christ's church, we remember God's ability in the face of our incapability. And it's the best news that we could possibly work through every single week. Let's make this a priority. And when you come here, worship. Sometimes it's going to be authentic, authentic expression. Sometimes it's going to be a formative practice. Look, God uses both to shape you and to grow you, to make you more like Jesus. So through the power of comparison, we see God's ability to save, and it shines bright here in the story of Sarah and Hagar. But Paul's not done. The story of Abraham also shows us that grace has an enemy, and it always has. We see this in verse 29. Here's what it says. But just as then the child born as a result of the flesh persecuted the one born as a result of the spirit, so also now. So let's do Zach again. Time out. All right. So Paul's still referencing Abraham's two sons here. As the story goes, Ishmael mocked his half-brother Isaac. We find this in Genesis chapter 21. And the event likely happened around the time that Isaac was three, all right? So this is the weaning period where you're weaning, the child weans off of the mom. And at the ceremony, supposedly, Ishmael, who's likely around 17 at this time, laughs at little three-year-old Isaac in Sarah's arms, who's in her 90s. So what is happening here is Ishmael is doing the toxic practice of comparison, Isaac is weak and incapable compared to who Ishmael is. Ishmael looks at the mom, he takes Sarah into consideration, and he also takes his mom, Hagar, into consideration. Hagar is still young and fertile. Sarah cannot say the same about herself. She's old, and it took a miracle to bring a child in. Hagar has so many years ahead of her. Her womb is still ready to bear children cannot be said the same of Sarah. And then he also looks at his own stature compared to Isaac. Isaac is a puny, tiny little child while Ishmael is in the prime of his life. I mean, he's, he's at the height of who he possibly can be. All of his vision and all of his future is ahead of him. And so he's looking and comparing his situation versus Isaac's situation. He says, no contest. But Paul says... What was true back then is still true today. Because those who rely on obedience and goodness will mock those who rely on the promise of God's grace. It happened to Isaac. It happened to the Galatians. And this mockery still happens today. In fact, I heard a story this past week that I think gives a good example of what this looks like in our modern day. And so there's a story that I heard where a, a group of pastors were going and doing visitation. They were visiting people where God had called them to minister. They go to a trailer park that was behind the church where they meet. And as they go to this trailer park, they meet a woman. And this woman, by world standards, her life was an absolute failure. Her life, her um, intimacy had been given over to multiple men. She had struggled with addiction in her life. 
Her finances were completely out of sorts. By the world's standards, she was an absolute failure. Her life was characterized by bad decisions. But as she saw these pastors come and they shared the good news of the gospel with her, she believed the good news of the gospel, that grace is not dependent upon her ability, but God's capability and the ability to save her. And so they left for a week, and in between her, their two visits, um, something happened. Because when they came back, to this woman, she was just ticked off at them, just absolutely ticked off at them. And so what had happened in between those two visits, this woman had given a call to her sister. Now her sister, by the world standards, was a strong and capable person. She lived the good life. She was the person that went to church. She had the ideal family. She married well. She had the obedient children. She was successful in life. She was a lawyer. And so as she was sharing about this good news of the gospel and what had happened in her life, the news that these pastors had shared with her when they came to visit her at her home and her joyful response to this good news, her sister, after hearing all of it, laughs at her. And she says, there's no way that it could be that simple. This is the same mockery that Paul is talking about that happened with Ishmael and Isaac. It's the same mockery that was happening with the Jewish teachers in the Galatians, and it still happens today. This woman, by the world standards, who's a failure, who's weak, who is incapable, calls her sister, who is strong, fully capable, and what happens? She's laughed at, she's mocked, and says that could never be true. Here's what we need to understand. The power of comparison brings clarity, but comparison is clearly not the power of gospel living. That's not the way that you live as if you're a Christian. Comparison is not the means by which you live. It only leads to an impoverished spirit. This is why Paul gives us the command in verse 30. He says, but what does the scripture say? Drive out the slave and her son, for the son of the slave will never be a co-heir with the son of the free woman. So in the story of Abraham, Hagar and Ishmael are driven out. They cannot receive the promise. They are the means of the flesh. This can never be a part of God's people. This is never a part of the people of promise. And in the same way, the Galatians were to drive out any teacher that preached salvation through obedience. And look, the leaders of the church in present day are also to remain or to fight for the purity of the church when it comes to their gospel clarity. The leaders of the church are to fight that the purity of our doctrine, that we fight for what we believe is true, that God is the one that is capable and we're incapable. It's fully upon the shoulders of Jesus that we are saved. That's what the leaders of the church do. But look, we need to make the fight personal. We need to fight this fight personally. So here's what this looks like. We personally drive out the voice of comparison that lives in our head as well as our heart. And Abraham Lincoln is a good, good example for us of how we do this. Um, when Abraham Lincoln was assassinated and he was declared dead, as they were um, looking through what he contained in his pockets, in his pants, um, one of the things that they found that was on his breast were clippings, newspaper clippings of encouragement that he carried around with him. One of the best leaders of our country 
walked around with news clippings of truth that were attached to his chest. And look, as those, as the children of promise, we need the truth of God that is hidden in our heart. And so what we do as God's people is we, remem- or we memorize God's estimation of us and we don't listen to the estimation of the voice of comparison. You want to practice what Paul's doing, talking about here? Where you fight the good fight against the enemy of grace is that you fight the fight against the voice that lives in your head. And the only way that you can fight that is not just by saying, I denounce you or I say no to you voice of comparison that lives in my head and my heart, but you have to replace it. And you replace it with what's true of you what God has spoken over you. And the only way you can do this is if you fight the good fight to memorize and hide that truth deep down the wells of your own heart. So here's some examples, all right? Romans 8 may be one of the best passages that speaks the truth about what you have in Christ Jesus over you. Here's just some of the things that are said, that you are no longer a child of slavery, but you're a child of freedom. There's therefore now no condemnation for you because of what Christ has done on your behalf. You're a child of God. The Spirit actually advocates on your behalf in prayer, speaking out, Abba, Father, just the whims of your own soul. When you can't muster up the words, your God is so good that the Spirit prays on your behalf. That you're an heir, a co-heir of the internal inheritance of Jesus Christ. Jesus is not just so gracious that he laid down his life for you, but he also shared his full inheritance with you that you became the son of the living God. God is working towards your, on your behalf where all things in this life, good and bad, are always working towards your good because you have a God that is so for you. There's no wasted moment in your life. God didn't spare anything to save you. Even shelling out his one and only son, Jesus laid down his life for you. God's prized possession in Jesus was laid down on your behalf. He spared nothing. And you are so forever placed in the palms and the bosom of God that there's absolutely nothing in this world, nothing in the heavens, nothing in the universe that can separate you from the love of God. This is all your truth in Christ Jesus that's spoken over you through Romans chapter 8. This is the voice that you listen to. It's not the voice of comparison. The voice of comparison doesn't define your life. God's voice does. Look, would you please live by it? Would you live by his voice? the truth that he speaks over you as his son and daughter that is fully his delight. You are his delight. Paul concludes Galatians 4 like this, verse 31. So brothers, we're not children of the slave, but of the free woman. So let's just conclude with a couple of questions. Questions I just want you to take with you and wrestle in your own heart, and your own mind as you think about stepping into your week this coming Monday. First, will God get my worship this week? Will God get my worship this week? 
whether it be authentic expression or formative practice, will I give God my worship? Look, the beauties of the gospel are yours in Christ Jesus. So Jesus is worthy of your worship. Are you going to give it to him this week? Maybe it's the practice and the discipline of your own soul to give him your worship this week. But I pray that it's out of the delight of your own heart because of what Christ has done for you, that you will give him your authentic expression and worship because Jesus is good and worthy. And then second, while I drive out the voice of comparison, the promises of the gospel are yours in Jesus Christ. Nothing can ever change the truth that God has spoken over you. It's locked in a vault. Nobody can get in. Only Jesus has the key, and it's with him in heaven, seated at the right hand of God. No one, absolutely no one, can snatch you out of his hands. So will you do the hard work of replacing the voice of comparison with the voice of God, which is the gospel truth that you find in Scripture that is yours in Christ Jesus?